Hi folks, my name is Patrick and welcome to my podcast, Aliens for Beginners. This is not a conspiracy podcast. It does not have an agenda nor any political leanings. It does not purport the existence of a multi-tentacled, blood-sucking demiurge. We just like to talk about aliens, damn it. So that's what we're going to do. And in this episode, we are going to talk about the Ebens, a.k.a. Extraterrestrial Biological Entities, also known as EBEs. These beings fall under the broad category of the Greys, and we understand that there are several, if not many, different types of Grey ETs. Um, that said the Ebens would be considered one of those. Before we get started, let me say that I do understand there is some ambiguity. There are some, some gray areas, no pun intended, when it comes to these beings. And, and it's, it is widely thought that the Ebens are completely different from the traditional small spindly three to four foot tall grays and that the the evens maybe have different slightly different features maybe taller and sturdier and certainly there are uh, many different types of the grays and we'll get into those in subsequent episodes but for the purpose of this episode we're going to let those ambiguities stand um so you know, as you're listening, someone may say, "Hey, that's not a, that's an even, not a gray, or that's a gray, not an even." But we're gonna let them, just let the chips fall in the same pot for this episode for today. Okay, so I'm going to begin by reading a fairly lengthy quote from the late Colonel Philip J. Corso's landmark book entitled The Day After Roswell, which was published in 1997, one year prior to um, Colonel Corso's death. Early in his career in the summer of 1947, Colonel Corso, an Army major at that time, had innocently befriended some enlisted men when he joins their bowling league and they won a championship. On the warm summer night of July 6, 1947, just a couple days after the Roswell crash, that's right, the Roswell crash occurred on the 4th of July, while making his rounds at Fort Riley in Kansas, then Major Corsa ran across one of these enlisted men Bill Brown, a.k.a. Brownie. Brownie was peeking out of what was then known as the Veterinary Building, an old building where Army horses had been cared for in times past. So I'm going to begin reading the quote now from The Day After Roswell. Quote, Major Corso, a voice hissed out from the darkness. It had an edge of terror and excitement to it. 
What the hell are you doing in there, Brownie? I be began cussing at the figure that peeked out at me from behind the door. Have you gone off your rocker? He wasn't supposed to be outside the building, not hiding in a doorway. It was a breach of duty. You don't understand, Major, he whispered again. You have to see this. Better be good, I said as I walked over to where he was standing and waited for him outside the door. Now, you go out here and where I can see you, I ordered. Brown popped his head out from behind the door. You know what's in here, he asked. Whatever was going on, I didn't want to play any games. The post-duty sheet for that night read that the veterinary building was off-limits to everyone. Not even the sentries were allowed inside because whatever had been loaded in, it had been classified as no access. What was Brown doing on the inside? Brownie, you know you're not supposed to be in there, I said. Get out here and tell me what's going on. He stepped out from inside the door, and even through the shadow I could see that his face was dead pale, just as if he'd seen a ghost. You won't believe this, he said. I don't believe it, and I just saw it. What are you talking about, I asked. The guys who offloaded those deuce and a halfs, he said. They told us they brought these boxes up from Bliss from some accident out in New Mexico. Yeah, so what? I was getting impatient with this. Well, they told us it was all top secret and they had looked inside anyway. Everybody down there did when they were loading the trucks. MPs were walking around with sidearms and even the officers were standing guard, Brown said. But the guys who loaded the trucks said they looked inside the boxes and didn't believe what they saw. You got security clearance, Major. You can come in here. In fact, I was the post-duty officer and could go anywhere I wanted during the watch. So I walked inside the old veterinary building, the medical dispensary for the cavalry horses before the First World War, and saw where the cargo from the convoy had been stacked up. There was one in the building, there was no one in the building except for Bill Brown and myself. What is all this stuff, I asked. That's just it, Major, nobody knows, he said. The drivers told us it came from a plane crash out in the desert somewhere around the 509th. But when they looked inside, it was nothing like anything they'd ever seen before. Nothing from this planet. It was the silliest thing I'd ever heard, enlisted men's tall stories that floated from base to base, getting more inflated every lap around the track. Maybe I wasn't the world's smartest guy, but I had enough engineering and intelligence schooling to pick my way around pieces of wreckage and come up with two plus two. We walked over to the tarpaulin shadow boxes and I threw back the edge of the canvas. You're not supposed to be in here, I told Brownie. You better go. I'll watch outside for you, Major. I was, I almost wanted to tell him that that's what he was supposed to be doing all along instead of snooping into classified material, but I did what I used to do best and kept my mouth shut. I waited while he took up his position at the door to the building before I dug any further into the boxes. There were about 30-odd wooden crates nailed shut and stacked together against the far wall of the building. The light switches were the push type, and I didn't know which switch tripped which circuit, so I used my flashlight and stumbled around until my eyes got used to the darkness and shadows. I didn't want to start pulling apart the nails, so I set the flashlight off to one side where it could throw light 
on the stack and then search for a box that could open easily. Then I found an oblong box off to one side with a wide seam under the top that looks like it had already been opened. It looks like either the strangest weapons crate you'd ever see or the smallest shipping crate for a coffin. Maybe this was the box that Brownie had seen. I brought the flashlight over and set it up high on the wall so it would throw us as broad a beam as possible. Then I set to work on the crate. The top was already loose. I was right, this one had just been opened. I jimmied the top back and forth, continuing to loosen the nails that had been pried up with a nail claw, until I felt them come out of the wood. Then I worked along the sides of the five or so foot box until the top was loose all the way around. Not knowing which end of the box was the front, I picked up the top and slid it off to the edge. Then I lowered the flashlight, looked inside, and my stomach rolled right up into my throat, and I almost became sick right then and there. Whatever they'd created this way, it was a coffin. But not like any coffin I'd seen before. The contents, enclosed in a thick glass container, was submerged in a thick light blue liquid, almost as heavy as gelling solution of diesel fuel. But the object was floating, actually suspended, not sitting on the bottom with the fluid over the top, and it was soft and shiny as the underbelly of a fish. At first I thought it was a dead child they were shipping somewhere, but this was no child. It was a four-foot human-shaped figure with arms, bizarre-looking six-figured hands. I didn't see a thumb, thin legs and feet, and an oversized incandescent light bulb-shaped head, and looked like it was floating over a balloon gondola for a chin. I know I must have cringed at first, but then I had the urge to pull off the top of the liquid container and touch the pale gray skin, but I couldn't tell whether it was skin because it also looked like a very thin one-piece head-to-toe fabric covering the creature's flesh. Its eyeballs must have been rolled way back in its head because I couldn't see any pupils or iris or anything that resembled a human eye but the eye sockets themselves were oversized and almond-shaped and pointed down to the tinier nose, which didn't really protrude from the skull. It was more like the tiny nose of a baby that never grew as a child grew, and it was mostly nostril. The creature's skull was overgrown to the point where all of its facial features, such as they were, were arranged absolutely frontally, occupying only a small circle on the lower part of the head. The protruding ears of a human were non-existent. Its cheeks had no definition, and there were no eyebrows or any indications of facial hair. The creature had only a tiny flat slit for a mouth, and it was completely closed, resembling more of a crease or an indentation between the nose and the bottom of the chinless skull than a fully functioning orifice. I would find out years later how it communicated, but at that moment in Kansas, I could only stand there in shock over the clearly non-human face suspended in front of me in a semi-liquid preservative. End quote. The being Corso describes obviously falls under the general category of the gray. 
However, as I said, there are apparently many different types of greys, most of them considered to be a bioengineered servant race, possibly utilized by several other more advanced creator races to carry out their projects and experiments. This particular being discovered by Corso in the veterinary building could fall under the Eben category based on the description that he gives of the being. In his book, The, e the Extraterrestrial Species Almanac, author Craig Campobasso describes the Ebens as follows. Three to four feet tall. Other descriptions put them up to five feet tall. Having milky white gray skin, Corso likens the, the skin that he saw to the underbelly of a fish. They have small noses, ears, and mouths. They are androgynous, no indication of any sexual organs. Their appearance is compared to children. Corso at first thought this was, what he was seeing was a deceased child, and experiencers frequently describe these beings as looking childlike or of at first mistaking them for children. The beings are chlorophyll-based. Uh, this is an aspect of the Eben or the gray that you don't hear about very often. Um, I did hear an interview with the late journalist and researcher C. Ronald Garner where he stated that the Eben that uh, Dr. Dan Burrish worked with, which they called the J-Rod in an underground um, military facility, this being the J-Rod subsisted by absorbing a chlorophyll substance in, in its small mouth. So, yeah, you don't hear about that often, of course, you don't hear about a lot of talk of how these aliens survive. What do they eat? What do they drink? And yes, this would be one of the few times that we hear about the greys subsisting on chlorophyll. Another aspect of the Ebens, according to Campobasso, is that they have limited consciousness and can only perform tasks that they are programmed or directed to do. And they are frequently dispatched on scientific expeditions guided by more advanced beings conducting abductions and experiments at the direction of their programmers. So, <clears throat> it is widely believed um, among researchers and those, those in the field that this is true of the spindly uh, three to four foot grays uh, maybe maybe not true of the five the taller ones the five footer taller ones and I know that it, some schools of thought put the five foot tall uh, beings described as the evens and they separate them from the grays so I'm, I'm aware of that that of that distinction um, but at any rate uh, Capobasso does claim that both the Ebens and, and the, uh, the Spindley Greys are uh, of limited consciousness and they are programmed. So the, the 
idea is that they are essentially an extension of the programmers who control them through thought and intention. So, for example, the same way you or I might control our fingers or hands. So, for the purposes of this this argument, this thought, we'll just group the evens and the grays into one category, and let's assume that they are chlorophyll-based beings who meet this description as being of limited consciousness and that they are a servant race performing tasks. So this, uh, this leads to an interesting thought. This leads me to an interesting thought. Okay, so it's widely held that the U.S. military has, over the past few decades, taken down ET crafts through the use of directed energy EMP or frequency weapons. Uh, it's also held by some that the Roswell crash was not in fact a crash, but one such case. So interviewers with whistleblowers and other former military personnel have even stated that there were or are standing orders to take down ET craft, presumably to uh, to gather them up to reverse engineer. And uh, in further in his book, The Day After Roswell, Colonel Corsa gets into a, a lot of that, so that a lot of the uh, technologies that we enjoy today did in fact come from the reverse engineering of extraterrestrial crafts. So Dr. Stephen Greer, in his work, also describes ET crafts being taken down in this manner. And, you know, in addition to the crafts being taken down, uh, extraterrestrials have been killed. And as we said, there were three or four bodies with the Roswell incident and other recorded incidents of extraterrestrial bodies uh, resulting from these crash crashes or uh, even having been shot down. So, Dr. Greer posits the fact that the ETs do not retaliate against these attacks with their vastly superior tech as evidence that the extraterrestrials are benevolent and extremely patient. So, and that may, that may in, fact, in fact be the case, and I don't, I'm not arguing that point. Um, however, it is worth considering this, this thought that if, in fact, these Ebens or Greys are, as uh, Campobasso says, quote, engineered humanoid automatons and are carrying out missions in these, let's call them danger zones, while their programmers are in a mothership or their planet far from the action, then would not these beings and their crafts be considered expendable and, let's just say, a cost of doing business. So whatever long-game projects or experiments the, the uh, master races, so to speak, the master beings behind these experiments, uh, the experiments are surely more valuable than the losses suffered, and indeed they're likely to have counted on and factored in these losses as well. So... Uh, there's some some serious food for thought there. I think that's a good counterpoint 
to the argument that Dr. Greer makes, and nothing against Dr. Greer, but to the argument that he makes um, for the reason why extraterrestrials do not retaliate when their crafts are shot down and, and some of these beings are killed. Uh, that does not mean that there are not, I'm not saying there are not benevolent ET races out there who wish to help us uh, advance. Uh, that I am, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying that's a good counterpoint to that argument. That the, uh, if you're going to make the argument that the fact that the extraterrestrials do not retaliate is evidence that they are benevolent, mm, that might not be a solid, a solid argument. Okay, so uh, Campobasso and his extraterrestrial species almanac also says of the Ebens, which he claims originate from the Orion constellation and or Zeta Reticuli too, may themselves have been abducted and had genetic material harvested, and that they may have been created through genetic manipulation, much the same way that humans are said to have been created by advanced races thousands of years ago. So, <clears throat> that's an interesting point. So, if, if we, you know, we talk about human beings possibly having been uh, created by, as Linda Moulton Howe says, uh, extraterrestrials tampering with the DNA of already evolving primates to create the, the Homo sapiens race. Uh, who's to say that that's not going on somewhere else? Uh, who's to say that abductions and the harvesting of genetic material and the cloning of beings uh, is not going on uh, uh, with other species and other planets and other worlds? So some of the other uh, some other examples of instances where the Ebens have appeared include uh, the alien autopsy film. Whether it's real or fake, the being represented in the film is a good example of uh, what, what we would consider an, an Eben. The, the Whitley-Strieber graves in Communion would also fall under that, as well as the beings described and drawn by some 60 children after the incident at the aerial school in Zimbabwe in 1994 which is possibly the most important mass sighting of the 20th century, uh, hashtag upcoming episode. And, uh, yeah, the 60, uh, some roughly 60 school children were all asked by Dr. John Mack to, famously by Dr. John Mack, to describe these beings. They drew pictures of the beings, and they all fit into this Eben, uh, this Eben description. The even slash grays are prolific in abduction scenarios, often working under the direction of other types of ETs, and we'll get into that in, in uh, future episodes. And uh, as I said, I understand that there is a blurring of lines, so to speak, between the different types of grays, and and I know that the evens uh, are often viewed as more advanced and somewhat taller than the spindly grays, but for the purpose of this episode, like I said, we're going to lump them all together uh, for the purpose of uh, Evens for Beginners Part 1. And I'll let that ambiguity stand for now. And we'll get into the possible distinctions 
and in later episodes on the on the Edens and the Greys. So that concludes the Edens for Beginners Part One. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for listening. If uh, you if you want to shoot me a line. You can, you can email me at aliensforbeginnerspod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. If you're interested in somewhere down the road being a guest, let me know. I'm, I'm planning, hoping to have what I'm going to call random guest episodes. And I'll just have a random guest on and we'll talk and maybe, uh, you know, have the guest listen to a previous episode, jot down some questions and some notes, and we'll start from there. I don't need uh, necessarily any expert or experiencers or anything like that. Just uh, any uh, smart, inquisitive person who can have a conversation. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Tell a friend if uh, you know someone who might enjoy this podcast. And we'll talk to you next time.